Hello and welcome to the Business of Betting podcast. Today I'm joined by Luke Berman. Luke, thank you very much for coming on. Before we get into this episode, make sure you follow us on Twitter, at BettingPod, and check out the website, businessofbetting.com. Guest suggestions are much appreciated. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Betfair Proprietary Limited. Betfair operates a betting exchange and is licensed in the Northern Territory of Australia. Residents of Australia can join Betfair by visiting betfair.com.au and support this podcast by using promo code BOBPOD. Please gamble responsibly. So thank you for listening and hope you enjoy this episode of the Business of Betting podcast. Today I'm joined by Luke Berman. Luke, thank you very much for coming on. I appreciate you having me, Jake. So we're going to talk about bbet.com.au, which is, as far as I know, the newest Australian online bookmaking business. Before we do, for those that don't know some of your experience and, and how things got started for you in betting, do you want to just take us through that? Yeah, my history uh, in betting's basically my entire life. I've, um, I'm 44. Uh, my father was and is a bookmaker. So I've been around racetracks since my teens. Uh, I grew up in Port Macquarie. Moved to Sydney when I was 19 or 20 uh, because I had originally wanted to, to do law and then that looked like too much hard work. So I moved on to Plan B, which was bookmaking. Came to Sydney and worked for a couple of friends of Dad's, Roger Hawke, uh, most notably Bill Hurley, who was one of the biggest bookmakers in Australia at the time. We're talking nearly 25 years ago. Uh, and he was probably the biggest influence on my career. Uh, I became an on-course bookmaker in Sydney at... 26, and I was the biggest turnover bookmaker in the Sydney Rails by 28. Um, I've never stopped bookmaking on course. I still field Rosehill and Randwick every Saturday, and I've had several incarnations. I was quite an early adopter into the online betting space. In about 05, we launched uh, racingodds.com.au. Good and bad timing. That was pre apps and pre-smartphones. I sold that in 08 to Sean and Kingsley Bartholomew, who later sold the business to Sportsbet, uh, Matt Tripp. Um, my main concern in 08 was the influx of the, the large corporate bookmakers and the reduction in the limits around advertising. Uh, I could see that at our size, we weren't going to be able to compete uh, in the marketing spend per year. Um, so since 08, I've been an on-course bookmaker. My wife, Claire, is also an on-course bookmaker and part of the company. And we've putted along until the last 12 months when I felt it was the right time to go back online, oblique in a very different circumstance personally, and the industry's changed a lot. Um, It's now all about smartphones and the focus of the sort of customer that's being catered to now is a lot different to 10 years ago. it's the the world has changed so much in terms of cash usage, tap and go, uh, smartphone usage for almost everything in every aspect of society that I thought it was the right time that uh, offering face to face only is a very limiting business nowadays. 
So we get to 2019. We've just launched bbet.com.au, which we're very happy with. It's all of uh, 12 days old. We've got some big plans. And here we are talking about it across halfway across the world. So we'll get to that in a minute. I'm curious. Age 26 on course in Sydney. What were your ambitions then? It sounds like things rapidly evolved if you were the biggest turnover bookie by age 28. Do you remember what you were thinking back then? Yeah, the 44-year-old me questions if I was thinking a lot at all. Um, <laughs> I, was single, I, was, I was single and very aggressive and didn't have a family and, and was just that was my life and I worked 24 hours a day. Um, there was, as there is now, the on-course bookmaking average age is... 70. Uh, so I was incredibly young, quite aggressive, had, had seen big, amazing bookmakers like Bill Hurley working uh, predominantly on the, on the interstate racing at the time uh, and thought I had a fair bit to offer and a fair talent for it. Um, without being egotistical, I probably, anyone that survived at this for 20-something years probably does have a fair talent for it. Um, yeah, I was probably, by today's my eyes today, I was too gung-ho, but uh, fortunately enough, it worked for me. Uh, I think that uh, Cole Tidy, John Kennedy, a few of those bigger Sydney Rails bookmakers at the time were probably winding down and there was a bit of room for me to expand. Um, yeah, I got. I probably should have, could have been a little bit more cautious in my attitude, but I um, uh, can't complain because I'm here today. So um, everything worked out in the long run, although... I do regret some of the silly decisions I made at, at 26 or 28. So were you taking calculated risks? And I guess looking back, it's probably easy to cherry pick, but were most of the things you're doing generally good risks and worth the risk at that age, given if everything went belly up, you probably could have gone back to university and studied law or you could have taken a job or you probably had options? Yeah, I, it's a terrible way to admit you were running a business and I might not have been aware of it at the time, but... With hindsight, there was definitely an attitude of if if I really stuff this up, I'm young, I don't have a family to feed, I could start again. Uh, not decisions I would make today. Yeah, I, I I did. I definitely felt like I had a plan B, but uh, you do cherry pick with hindsight. Um, I I can tell. I could. I could rattle on for hours about bad decisions I've made and I've probably forgotten a lot of the good decisions. It's a little bit like at, at the time there was a lot of credit being offered and you can go back through your old records and see masses of money that you were never paid. But you only focus on the amounts you were never paid. You never focus on the fact that, well, that customer ended up owing you X dollars, but he paid you 10X before the last X wasn't paid. Um, so it's a, you have to remember, take the good with the bad as well. So what's life like for a 28-year-old biggest turnover bookie on course? Is it high-flying and uh, a lot of parties and, and alcohol and fun, or is it were you diligent and hard-working? It sounds like you must have had uh, a work ethic to be able to get to that point. Yeah, probably a little bit of both. Um, I never minded a party at that age. Uh, I was probably a bit too quick to spend money on fast cars and things like that. Um, all of these habits I've been cured of father enjoying a drink um and I, I always remember being very conscious and i did have very good role models my father is very sensible and, and people like bill hurley who i had around me at the time 
were very level-headed. And I think uh, I very much had an attitude of, well, I was taught an attitude, which I still believe, a loaf of bread still worth a loaf of bread. And if you talk to people out of the industry about some of the silly things you've done and how much you've stood to lose, how much you've won or lost on races, it sounds ridiculous. But it's all part of running a business. It's a year-long strategy. Uh, it's not about one race. And I'm with I'm with everybody else. If you are not in this world, and I suggest to you that you could lose $100,000 on one race back then, not now, you would rightfully be pale but th it was just one race in a series of thousands of races all year long so uh, I think the important thing was the silly things that happened on the racetrack didn't carry over into your personal life when you went home you still had to budget and as I said a loaf of bread was still worth a loaf of bread so tell me what a typical golden slipper day was like for you around that time was it were you fearful of losing your entire bankroll or were you just lapping it up and enjoying it and you know what size bets were you taking 10 minutes before the race is it absolute mayhem and chaos tell us how it was like back then it was a lot more fun on course uh there was a lot of big punters there wasn't the the apps there wasn't the rise of the corporates um my best ever golden slipper and we should also talk about my worst ever because my worst the more terrible than my best are good. Uh, Calway Gal won the Golden Slipper in about 03. I could look that up. I should know off the top of my head. I think it's about the last race Calway Gal ever ran, <laughs> uh, ever won. Uh, I accidentally, in the rush of the race, forgot to lay the horse. And uh, <laughs> when, it, when it won, Schwarzy was in the race, ran third. And when it won, I quite to my own astonishment, won a hundred and something thousand on the race, which at the time was the most I'd ever won on the race. And I was, uh, I was probably, I'm guessing 28. And um, yeah, that's anyone that's not, doesn't get their pulse racing and a, and uh, a sheen of sweat on their foreheads. Very cold indeed to, to do something like that and, and, and not be excited by it. But as is the nature of these things, you've got to go and get back on the stand and, work again because there's another race coming up yeah those those days were a lot different and everybody you talk to bookmakers older than myself everyone's always on about it was always better in the old days and it and it was i would love to have seen the 60s and 70s but even I'm talking 10 15 years ago the sydney betting ring was still a very strong betting ring with a lot of turnover how long did it take for you to Treat money differently. If you're talking six-figure bets, for example, not many people in their 20s can simply flick the switch and say that it's completely fine to take you know, a six-figure bet on a six-to-one chance and just treat it as if nothing's happened. Was that a, a process for you, or were you pretty comfortable with that side of things? Uh, I'd, I'd, I probably was always betting at that age to, to the absolute limit of my bank, uh, which is not to be recommended. Um, it, I just had a pretty unwavering faith that I was doing the right thing and I, I had always been taught by people like Bill Hurley who who admittedly had a lot of behind him um, that, you know, that you should make good decisions based on them being good decisions, not based on really the, the size of the number, I guess, that it's important to 
if you've got a bet because of your a certain way because of your bankroll, that's not really conducive to winning. Uh, a good taking a, a bet is either a good bet or a bad bet. Uh, it might be based on who it's coming from, or but it shouldn't really be based on how big it is. Uh, and I probably at that age took that very literally. So tell me about Bill Hurley. He obviously is a a big name in this space. What were some of the things you took from him and how he went about his, I guess, his entire career? Uh, Bill's well into his 70s now um, and long retired. He he was very calculating, as was uh, Harry Barrett, another famous name who was stood up alongside him at the time. They weren't particularly form-orientated. It was all about the customer. And they were cold. They were just, if they they trusted the process, they trusted that the, the punters didn't have a particular head start over them over a period, they just bet. Um, there was a, a, a famous bookmaker pre those guys named Bob Bland, who I've never had the privilege of meeting, but he, from all reports, was pretty much the master of that, that he just um, pretty much trusted. Uh, this is... Pre, pre Bill Hurley, Bruce McHugh sort of time, and those guys just bet on a very big scale because they thought they had an inherent advantage, and if they just kept betting, they'd end up in front. So, how many evolutions of the business do you think you've been through? There's obviously the high flying, on track, large amounts of money style, and then now nowadays, certainly with the corporate style of bookmaking, has there been more than two evolutions in your time? Yeah. Obviously, that 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, there was still a lot of money on track, and I got the tail end of that, which I'm grateful for. Um, and there was a lot of money flying around. You could make mistakes, and they could be covered up. And, I, I mean, massive liabilities aren't really a mistake, but I'd I just suggest to you that the numbers, what you can win or lose on a race, is, is only really important relative to what you can turn over. So losing a lot of money on a race isn't too bad if you're holding a lot of money and you can foreseeably get it back in a short period of time. But losing a moderate amount of money if you're not holding very much is deadly in my opinion. So back then you could you took bigger risks, but you were always a chance of getting it back, whereas nowadays you have to be much more uh, conscientious and and just more careful really um back so i've had that uh, got the the good end of that period of bookmaking and then i saw early internet betting 05 to 08 um which i probably didn't really have my head around and i think i handled it very poorly with with hindsight and then i i was just a sort of contented on-course bookmaker for most of the last 10 years um but i see a real change in both gambling and social trends now, which is what's encouraged us to move back on online as well as on course. As I mentioned before, I think that the rise of tap and go, um, less and less cash in society, and the apps are the most important thing. The, the, you and I would be no different to, to every other listener we're all addicted to our iPhone, whether it be not just for betting, for, for basically most of the functions in our life. Um, so that's that's really another incarnation. What about the punters themselves? Have you observed major differences from 
you know, the the average punter or even the more sophisticated punter on the day that Callaway Gal won the slipper versus nowadays, or is it largely similar groups of, of punters and I guess the the style might be the same, the industry is just a bit different? Yeah, I think ten and fifteen years ago the, the smart punters were still were already smart. Um, what benefited them and us was the greater amounts of social I don't like to use the term mug money, but social money or uneducated money uh, or partially educated money. While we were all turning over a lot of money, we were giving a good service to the smart punters because it fit our book and, and you had you could still give them a, a good bet because you were holding plenty of money. Whereas now, that attitude was probably wrong with hindsight, but that's how it panned out. But now because there's not all the loose money on track, um, the bets that the smarter punters have have a bigger impact on your winning and losing. Therefore, you tend not to cater to the smart punter as much as you used to. Uh, th- that and the internet has made them, I think, get a lot cagier as to how they bet. I say they, it's not one group of people, but, I mean, there's, there's the obvious well-known faces. Um, Dr Nick, Sean Bartholomew, Kingsley Bartholomew, the like, the... There's a lot more have come and gone, but those are the sorts of people who've been around for a long time. And I think if you can survive punting 10 or 15 years, it's a pretty big effort. Uh, you know, there's there's also the whole mythical Jelko influence, which I don't claim to understand, but he, he doesn't have a – that we know of, that group doesn't really have a, a, a noticeable effect on the betting ring, although obviously they're huge – that company is a huge punting conglomerate. Uh, we they've never really been focused on on-course betting. So take me through your bookmaking style or your strategy, because it sounds like you mentioned a little bit about Bill before being you know stone cold and maybe playing the punter a bit more. What was your preferred approach to bookmaking? Probably similar. I've never been, and this is another one of those conversations you can't have with people outside of the industry, because I mean even today people ask me my. The guy that owns my local coffee shop still asks me for tips on a Friday. Um, to be honest, it's mid-afternoon Friday in Sydney at the moment. Um, about all I know about tomorrow's racing is what time the first race is. I've never been form-orientated. Uh, my attitude's really to give a good service to all comers. And I've never liked to keep horses because I feel like you're giving another punter an opportunity to not bet with you. Um, and I've never had much belief in my own opinion. So um, I'd rather that my customers made the mistakes rather than I made the mistakes. I think if I was an opinionated about racehorses, I would be a punter and save the enormous levies and fees we pay annually. So how does that translate? If I took a random person off the street, took them to the track or, or now with the app, and would they see much more fluctuations in the odds based on some of the bets and information you're getting, or would you be a little bit more staunch? How does it translate from a an average person trying to watch what you do perspective? Yeah, uh, technology's changed the way odds are, uh, markets move as well. I think going back, 10 or 15 years pre-Betfair, you had to use a bit more nous 
the, both the punter and the bookmaker and how markets were created were a bit more subject to opinion, whereas now technology, there's so many markets, there's particularly like for Saturday, we've, we're betting on, well, they're being bet on those races from Wednesday. So they're, they're very mature markets by the time we get to race time. Uh, Betfair obviously has a huge impact as well, although only quite late. It's no good in the early t- in days out, but in the last 15 minutes, it has a very big impact. Uh, and Betfair is also somewhat stymied freedom of expression because if you've got liquidity in a market, we'll call a Sydney or Melbourne race with five minutes to go, if you're $8 a horse and Betfair's trading nine sixty, well, you know no one, none of the big smart players are going to back it with you. Whereas in previous days, the punter had to make a decision what time and when they took a price, whereas now Betfair guides a lot of that. So in some ways, that's the free expressions come out of the market a little bit and it's a little bit more regulated. There's less... Less chop, uh, I don't, no, less chopping and changing is not the right term. I think the SP on metropolitan racing nowadays is very, very accurate. Does that make your life easier, would you say, compared to previous decades where there was a lot more judgment of the punter involved and certainly the bookmaker if they're more of a form approach bookmaker? Yeah, I, I, I miss the days when the punters had to make a decision where they couldn't be guided by Betfair, where they had to decide that, yes, that horse has now gotten to $9, I'm happy to take that. The, the certainty around the pricing late in betting now is, is, is a positive for me, that I'm pretty confident when I'm laying $3 a horse, there's a lot of players, a lot of market influences have decided that horse ends up at $3, and I can be reasonably confident I'm laying the right price. So from that perspective... It benefits me uh, from the perspective of making a of letting a punter make a mistake. I'd prefer the old days pre pre so much information. How do things differ for you between Doncaster Day or Epsom Day versus Kembla Grange on a Tuesday, for example? <laughs> the I think particularly in recent times. Uh, the, 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 I'll use Melbourne as an example because we're also licensed in Melbourne and fortunate enough to have a license in the city down there that lets us come and go a little bit. So I tend to be in Melbourne just for the oh, 15 best race days of the year. I don't have to be there in the middle of January or the middle of July, which is quite lovely. The, it is, the racing in Sydney and Melbourne is getting more seasonal, I've got no doubt. So the quiet times are getting more quiet and the busy times are probably holding their own. Um, the Everest, two years old, has been a, for on-course bookmakers, has been a boon. Uh, I can only say from my own figures, my busiest race meetings of the year would traditionally have been the championship days around Easter and Melbourne Cup Day. Uh, the Everest, just because, through sheer amount of publicity, in its two years of existence, has been my single biggest turnover day on course, which is amazing that a brand-new race could suddenly be your biggest day of the year. So I think that's an amazing effort and to be congratulated uh, 
the, the ACC and Racing New South Wales to be congratulated on that sensational performance, but the lack of focus on non-carnival days is definitely to our detriment. So we've got um, right through the middle of winter and through the middle of summer, just as much racing, but it's very quiet racing in an on-course bookmaking scenario. Do you think that would be different if it wasn't $5 the field with, you know, Red Zell the favourite compared to Black Caviar or Winx at dollar forty, for example? I think... Or even in the middle, if it was something was two sixty, and then the second favorite was four forty, and then you know some sevens and eights chances as well. Is it is it purely because of those races how they've panned out and the fields have been excellent and relatively even? I think nowadays it's all about publicity and uh, and promotion. And I think, for instance, Sydney. I mean, the VRC is a good. We'll talk about Melbourne. They really just focus on one week of the year now. There's not a lot of racing publicity around other race meetings. Uh, Melbourne doesn't seem to be able to compete with the AFL, so as long as the AFL's on, there's not much interest in racing. In Sydney, they spent massive amounts of money promoting the Everest. Uh, From my own experience, I'd say when they invented the championships and started promoting the championships, it was to the detriment of the slipper. I think there seems to me to be a policy of really hyping up the big meetings, that the, the headline acts, and then if if punters aren't really interested in coming to Rose Hill in the rain on a July Saturday, well, that's okay. I don't think there's a lot of effort put into those races. Uh, I think there's more focus on the pointy end of the field. Um, the, the biggest difference, though, is one, cash usage in society, and two, the smartphones. There is so many other ways to bet now that in terms of a face-to-face on-course bookmaker, they rely on the race club bringing the crowds through the gate and those crowds are only coming to selected race meetings uh, because it's – I don't think that means there's less people interested in horse racing or less people betting every Saturday. They just have a lot more places to bet. The Betfair Exchange isn't a house that sets the odds. It's betting at its purest. One punter's opinion against another's. Play the game within the game at betfair.com.au. Gamble responsibly. So that might be a good time to transition to bbet.com.au. What was the impetus to start that online business? After years out of the scene and massive changes, uh, the the cash usage in society was a big issue for me, uh, continues to be. The fact that now the person in front of you, when you go for your coffee in the morning, pays for their $4 coffee with a tap-and-go card, uh, it it just strikes me that if that's how people live their lives nowadays, it's pretty hard to encourage them to say, well, you do everything with a tap-and-go card all year long, but when you come to the races twice a year, can you please put some money in your pocket? I just don't think that's realistic. Um, And that the rise of the corporate bookmakers has been meteoric. Uh, whether that's good or bad, I think the administrators have been lagging behind. I think the TAB's been a, a lumbering, lazy mess for many years. And they all got shown up because the, the lawmakers didn't keep up with technology. Uh, the TAB had been lazy because it had the off-course monopoly. And then suddenly there was this 
crazy thing called the internet. And it took the regulators and the CAB quite a few years to work out that this was a, a backdoor way into what had formerly been their private domain of, of single-handedly taking their slice of the off-course market. And I, we see the, the upshot of that is the race field levies as they stand today, which are amazingly high, and now this new point of consumption tax, which is just another invented product to, to scrape more money back out of the corporate bookmakers um, because the regulators didn't see what was going to happen in the last 10 years. How different is the online business been to a typical jump in the car, drive anywhere from half an hour to three hours, I would imagine, uh, a couple of times a week or more? What What's some of the biggest changes for you so far? I, I was quite encouraged. Um, my face-to-face clientele, I'm no longer in the betting ring at Rose Hill or Randwick. I, I'm in separate members' positions and I have quite a loyal clientele of people that we see every Saturday or lots of Saturdays. They've been quite enthusiastic uh, and quite encouraging in, in saying, well, we like betting with you for Saturday and, of course, if we could, we bet with you through the week as well. Um, in a in a micro way, that's in, that I found that very encouraging. The as I said, we're all of twelve days old, so my experience is only so great. Um, the minimum bet laws online, and the number of uh, disgruntled punters with the corporate bookmakers has struck us as quite. I knew it existed, but I probably didn't know the extent to which it exists. Um, we the minimum bet laws in Australia. Are Call it a thousand dollars. You're obliged to bet anyone online to bet to win a thousand dollars. You can't close their accounts, and you can't refuse someone an account. I don't think a thousand dollars is too much to ask a bookmaker to bet anybody on anything. Uh, but apparently, some of these massive companies we're hearing from some of the new clients we've met in the last twelve days uh, are trying their hardest to dissuade anyone who's reasonably clever from betting with them. I don't want to be the the leader in attracting the world's smartest punters to our door, but I think there's honour amongst thieves, and I think if there's a minimum bet law, then that's what we're obliged to do. I think we we're quite happy to say legally we have to let you have an account and we have to let you on to win a thousand dollars in a bet. End of story. That's what we'll do. I'm not going to come up with sneaky ways to avoid you, uh, avoid that obligation. How long did you have to spend thinking about your approach on this topic? Because it's clear that there are minimum bet laws and they may not necessarily be followed through uh, by everyone. Was it something that you just looked at, accepted and understood and thought that seems reasonable or it seems acceptable anyway? Or were you having to spend some time to think about how you would approach it and if there's an angle you could take that might be beneficial on the business side? Obviously, Having an uneducated punter bet with you is a lot more fun than having an educated punter bet with you. I just think it's par for the course. Uh, we spent 12 months in the development of bbet.com.au before we launched, and we had to make peace with a few things. One's the minimum bet laws. Uh, one is the race field fees as they stand, which are very, very high. And one is the point of consumption tax. So I guess I would lump the three of them into the same category and say, well, to anybody, if 
I, I don't like any of those three rules either, but they're the rules. And if you don't like those three rules, be involved in another industry. So am I thrilled about minimum bet laws? Probably not. Am I happy to oblige, happy to live by them in a day-to-day sense? Yes, I am. And that's something that we, at management level, we've discussed at length. Uh, what are we going to do? I mean, these are all the sorts of things you've got to deal with before you open. Uh, for instance, I mean, obvious things. So when someone smart bets with you, are you going to endeavour to back it back somewhere else? Those sorts of policy issues. And in our case, we said, no, that's, I think that's a very short-sighted attitude and a lot of hard work and probably just unnecessary. So in our case, and as I said, I'm not trying to be a martyr in all this because I'd rather deal with uneducated punters than educated punters, but it's an open-door policy. That's what the law says, and that's how we're true. In our first 12 days, we haven't knocked back a bet. We Everybody gets a service to at least the minimum bet limit. And in a way, I would say, I would... I would argue it's in for a penny and for a pound. If I've got to let smart punters bet with me, I'd I'd better I'd be better off having a hundred of them bet with me at one time than two of them bet with me at one time because they can't all back the same horse and they can't all back every winner. So, what's the biggest challenge you will face in the next sort of three to six months? Either something you anticipated and you've thought through, or even something that was completely unknown or, or unique to what you expected. I think we have two really big issues. One is the simple question of people saying, why bet with bbet.com.au? I've already bet with the tab. I already bet with Sportsbet. Why? That is actually, to a great extent, a very hard question to answer. Um, I think our unique selling point is we're people. Um, If you look at the website, you can find my email address. You can contact management. You've got a complaint if you'd like to ask a question, if you have a specific need that you would, a product, anything particular to your betting that you would like accommodated, you can speak to management. You don't have to call a call centre or, a, you know, a, a random we'll get back to you email sort of address. You can come and see us at the races. We're real people. Um, we're Australian-owned, which most of the corporates aren't, obviously, uh, nor are we a public company. Uh, and we, odds-wise, we're very competitive. So that's going to appeal to, I think there's a middle ground of punters there who aren't being particularly looked after by the corporates, who are semi-educated, enjoy their racing, are probably quite hard to beat, but they're not 10% on turnover losing customers. So the larger corporates aren't really interested in them. I think that's, in the early days, that's that's our probably our target market. The really uneducated punters who lose 15% on turnover are going to be very hard to get off the sports bets and the, the bet easies of this world. Um, they're obviously being very well looked after wherever they are now. And to be honest, we don't have an IT department the same size as bet easy. So technology of keeping important, relevant technology up to date will be harder for us than the large corporates. 
what's a critical part of your business that mo- most people wouldn't know about? And it can be something from, you know, 28-year-old Luke on course with high turnover or something now that most people probably don't appreciate or understand that that is a large component. Well, in the old days, the issues were low margin and credit debt. Uh, nowadays, low margin's still an issue. Credit debt's not an issue because there's no credit on the internet at all anymore in Australia. Um, I think the biggest problem going into this new space that we're, we're now in is around marketing and brand exposure and customer engagement. Um, Michael Sullivan, who was the CEO of Sporting Bet for many years, uh, once said to me, we're a marketing and IT company. He didn't even really consider himself in, involved in a gambling company, and that's proves to be pretty true on the internet. Um, but I think our biggest challenge or, or what people probably don't realise is it's very hard to make noise online, uh, particularly 12 days old. But what we – the problem we will face is the TAB might be $40 million in the next 12 months on advertising. Obviously, we're not in that – Fine. So how do you get your message out in the world to say, come and bet with bbet.com.au, don't, you don't have to bet with Sportsbet or the TAB? Or we, we bet best of the three totes plus SP versus you bet with the TAB, you just got to take their TAB price. Or we bet top fluctuation, they don't. That's all true. And on-course bookmakers have always had that problem. On-course bookmakers have always had a fantastic product with very low margin and a very good product for punters, but the internet makes it very hard to get your message out. So I think our biggest challenge in the next, in our first 12 months of operation will be around marketing and advertising. On that theme, what do you think the future looks like for not only corporate bookmaking or online bookmaking as it is today, but Betfair and exchanges as well as tote betting and, and all those different components to go into it? Do you think things will continue to evolve and change as they have over the last 10 years? Or do you think there's going to be issues with the product potentially and it won't necessarily be on the bookmaking side? It might even be the racing side? Or what are some of the things you expect to to evolve over the next handful of years? Yeah, well, the TAB, to its credit, in the last period of time, the last three or four or five years, has really realised it needs to become a corporate bookmaker. Um, You know, I don't know management there, what they think of what they've had to pay for the retail exclusive, retail exclusivity now with the, the way things are. Um, obviously, I don't particularly want shares in, in the high street shops anymore, but, and they have right to feel aggrieved that the internet has let other big players into what had formerly been their market and what they guess they think they're paying a massive fee for the retail exclusivity. Um, but I think they've done a good job at basically turning themselves into another corporate, which they realise they need to do. Betfair, uh, I know, is a supporter of, of this podcast. Uh, um, it, it doesn't suit me. I'm I'm a retired Betfair customer. Um, Betfair is in a very awkward situation. I think it's a beautiful theory. Racefield legislation makes the fees for most Betfair users quite wouldn't say prohibitive, but quite hefty nowadays. Um, I don't know what Betfair's liquidity figures look like. I feel like it's it's not growing, as just through my own eyes. I think it's going to have a struggle in years to come. 
uh, particularly if the, if the gov state governments keep having this attitude of where we're going to get some more money from, I will just increase the race field fees or introduce a new point of consumption tax. Uh, I remember Concavitaris, who was another big-time, very well-known bookmaker and at the time owner of Cenobet, he went on a fact-finding mission to the UK and he came back and I was working next to him uh, on the interstate rails and he said to me, Luke, if Betfair ever opens here, it'll be the end of us all because it had decimated the market in the UK. And he, w he was partially right, but he didn't give Australia enough credit. In the UK, they'd been robbing the punters blind for years and years, betting them SP, manipulating prices, just not betting a competitive product. When Betfair came along, it was a breath of fresh air. Betfair's never had the same impact in Australia because we've always had strong betting rings with low margins. So the Betfair product didn't stand out so much as it does in the UK. I think Betfair will struggle in the future. Uh, financially, as a company in Australia, it's never been a success. Um, the corporates are, I mean, there's been a lot of consolidation. Um, I think it was PricewaterhouseCooper did a study on the point of consumption tax. And to their, to their eyes, the TAB and Sportsbet were the only two corporates that would be able to survive the point of consumption tax in their current business models. That the point of consumption tax has now started, so time will tell how, what impact it has. Uh, I, sent, I, I can't believe it will close any businesses, but it might create a need for more margin in the markets. So you might see less competitive or higher margin markets. I would think, to cover the point of consumption tax. I mean, no one's indestructible. William Hill's a huge company, but William Hill shut their doors and got their bat and ball and went home, what was that, 18 months ago, uh, packed up their Sydney operation and went back to Europe. So it's not the rivers of gold that some of the Europeans probably assumed it was. Um, on course is continuing to go backwards, to be honest. Cash is down. Uh, the The demand Australia-wide is the same, but supply is so much greater, and there are a lot easier ways to play to, or to bet on racehorses than being on course. Having said that, I trust – I have a, a five-year-old and a three-year-old, and I trust that when they're 18, hopefully I'm going to have a business for them to inherit. Um, I don't think bookmaking will go – on-course bookmaking will go away, but – it will be limited in size and scope. Uh, it's gotten a lot smaller than it was 10 years ago overall, and I think between the average age of the participants and the decreasing cash on course, I think it will continue to decline. So the idea of the Australian product in horse racing being very competitive and a lowish margin, uh, as distinct from the example you gave in the UK, does it worry you if things might head a different direction and the product may not be as competitive because some of the, the forces that you discussed? Or do you think that there will be an evolution and if that happens, someone will chime in with a new iteration on what's been done and, and it'll continue to go through a cycle and, and racing will be, I guess, it'll continue and its longevity won't be in jeopardy? Or do you think there's other competitors out there, whether it is sports that a lot of people talk about or other areas that might take some of that market share and, and things will steadily decline? We haven't mentioned sport. Uh, at at BBET, we are interested in sport. Our initial our website as it stands today 
doesn't have sport on it, but plans are afoot to include sport. Uh, the sporting codes have been a lot more easygoing in doing deals with the corporates than, than the racing industry has been. Um, so betting on AFL or NRL to a big corporate, it, it, it comes with it a lot less fees than it does betting on horse racing. So whether that in time promotes sports betting and decreases the promotion of race betting, it's hard to see that that won't happen. I'd like to see on my wish list uh, the state racing authorities realising that just increasing fees over and over again is not really the best way forward and that you'd be better off with a low fee market that promoted the growth of the pie in general. I think whatever you keep increasing the, pr the price of doing business, you're going to shrink the pie, not grow the pie. Um, it's a little bit like payroll tax. You're being punished for being bigger. Now, I'm not sure there's many industries where you get punished for being bigger. So I don't think that's realistic. I don't think we're going to see it in the near future, but I'd like to see a more consultative approach from the, the racing industry. Do you think growing the pie generally would help fend off some of those competitors? I think it would. I think what we'll see going forward is, and I think we've already seen it with the corporate marketing, um, their advertising is going to aim more and more at sport and less at racing because I think they're, they're significantly better off fee-wise to write a bet on the AFL than they are on at Flemington Race 1. Um, I fear that if you keep having that attitude, then then the, the advertising, which obviously is very powerful because that's how these companies have become so large, will be aimed more at have a bet on the football, not have a bet on the races, which I think is or clearly is a negative for the for the racing industry long term. So, look, we could probably go on for hours. I have one last question for you, and I certainly appreciate all of your time uh, and the discussion has been fascinating for me. I want to ask about your thoughts and observations on some of the punters that you've dealt with over the years. What are some of the things that you've observed from them that allows them to win longer term and be around as long as you have? Uh, yeah, that's, a, that's almost a show in itself. I, I've had the pleasure and displeasure of knowing well, all, the, all the big players in Sydney in the last 20 years. Um, probably the one I'm most friendly with is Sean Bartholomew, who who's now resides in the UK. He's also one of the best known and, and one of the one of the happier ones to do interviews in the past as well. So he's probably better known to the general population. I've I've been to Sean's house, I've eaten dinner with him, I've been out to drinks with him. Um, I still can't tell you what it is he does to win. And and I think that's probably across all those successful punters I know, you can spend quite a bit of time with them and I still don't really understand what what it is. I guess, like every bookmaker has their own particular way of going about things, each punter does as well. And in the same way you asked about the iterations of my business, I'm sure how Sean punts or how any of those successful punters bet today is not the same as they bet 10 years ago. I think all these businesses are constantly evolving, technology, uh, racing is just a different game. If you're doing ratings and computer-aided pricing that can only be as good as as the information you give it so 
as jockeys and trainers change, become dominant or less dominant, how you deal with those changes or how you're plugging that information in to get the end result, be it a, your market or your suspected winners or however you want to play that, I think those guys have to stay right on top of their game. They can't just be using the two-year-old playbook, I'd suspect. But as I said, one of the things that strikes me across all the people that I've met who fit into that category is I'm very in the dark as to how they bet and how they win. That's amazing. Luke, I want to ask just before I let you go, for those that aren't aware of BeBet or haven't given it a try, what's the best way for them to do that? Is it to go on the website? bbet.com.au. Uh, I can tell you we are we are very genuine. We're here to grow. There's a lot of bookmaking experience in our team. Um, we continue to be supporting on-course bookmaking. Uh, I think bbet online is a is a growing proposition. As I said, we're looking at sport and, and that full expansion of product offering. At the moment, we appeal to that section of society, and that is a quite large section, who is really enjoys their horse racing, as we do. And uh, we're Australian-owned, and I think long-term we've got a very agile business model because we're not the same size as some of our competitors. We won't be spending $40 million next year on advertising, I can guarantee you. And I think our product offering is very competitive. For instance, we're betting top fluctuation right up until the jump on all Australian horse racing, and that includes right up until a horse firms. Now, I can't speak definitively, but I don't know of anyone else that's offering that at the moment. So I guess with our smallness and our lack of advertising, one of our key selling features is is the products we offer. Um, I would encourage people to have a look because I think that it's a big world out there and I think a lot of customers aren't being particularly well looked after by some of the large corporates. Uh, Betfair has become a very expensive proposition and I think to give new players an opportunity and I would invite anybody and everybody to have a look to get in contact with us if they have questions, to register an account. If they like the product, if they enjoy betting with us, please do. If they don't, ring me up and talk to me about it. Sounds great. I certainly wish you and Claire all the very best and hopefully, you know, 12 days is in the end. It's 12 months and then maybe 12 (laughs) years and, uh, you know, on to bigger and better things. But I certainly do appreciate your time, Luke, and thanks again for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Jake. We, I really appreciate what you're doing. I think it's a fascinating series of podcasts. And uh, and, and thank you for having me and um, letting me push my little point of view on the world. And, and I enjoy talking to you. Thanks.